اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم الحمد للہ رب العالمین وصل اللہ علی سیدنا محمد و آلہ الطیبین الطاہرین اللہم صلی علی محمد و آلہ محمد Previously we examined a very important incident, an act of sacrifice that occurred on the night of the Hijrah. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, offering to sleep in the Prophet's bed. And the pagans, they came to attack the Prophet, to assassinate him only to discover that the Prophet was not there. The Prophet had escaped and Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, was in his bed. Now after the Prophet leaves the city of Mecca, he goes south to a cave called Ghar al-Thawr, the cave of Thawr. This is a cave that is situated about four kilometers south of Mecca. Now on the way to this cave, as the Prophet was going to Ghar al-Thawr, Abu Bakr joins him. Now how exactly does Abu Bakr join the Prophet is still a historical mystery. It's still debated amongst historians. We know that after the Prophet escaped, somewhere on his way to the cave, he met Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr joined him and he went into the cave with the Prophet. But how exactly did Abu Bakr join him? Was there an appointment between him and the Prophet? Did he accidentally see the Prophet on the way? We don't know exactly what happened. However, we can work with some clues to see how Abu Bakr came into the picture. Because before that, only Imam Ali was in the picture. Only he knew of the Prophet's plan to leave and he was willing to sacrifice his life for the Prophet. Other companions, it seems, were not aware that the Prophet was escaping that, that night, to escape that assassination uh, attempt. So how is it that Abu Bakr came into the picture? So that's one possibility, that it was a coincidence. However, let's look at some historical clues to tell us more about the role of Abu Bakr in this incident. Now Ibn Hisham in his seerah, he mentions that when the Quraysh, the pagans realized that their plot was failing and that the Prophet was no, nowhere to be found, it was Imam Ali in his bed, Ibn Hisham tells us that someone appears, he doesn't tell us who, keeps it vague. Someone appears and he talks to these um, people who had come to murder the Prophet. He comes to them and he tells them, you have lost, you failed. قَدْ وَاللَّهِ خَرَجَ عَلَيْكُمْ مُحَمَّدْ Muhammad has escaped. And I'll tell you how he escaped. He took some sand or some dirt and he threw it at you and he blinded you. Now at this point they were so confused how their plot failed 
Apparently they were not aware that there was dust and sand on their faces and their heads. So he tells them, just touch your hair and you'll see that there's sand on your hair. So they touch their heads and their hair, they realize, yeah, you know what, there's sand on our heads. And he told them, see, he escaped and you have failed in your plot. Don't you see what has happened? Then they told him, what do you mean? How did he escape? This is his house and this was his bed. Then it clicks that this was the Prophet's plan and scheme to escape and to have Imam Ali in his bed. So Ibn Hisham tells us that someone came and talked to these people about the Prophet escaping and rebuking them. He's saying it in a tone that he's rebu rebuking them, you know, you failed, why did you let him leave in a tone like that? Ibn Hisham does not tell us who that person is. So we need to look for clues to see who that person is. Now upon examining some clues, we can come to the following conclusion. Let's ask, who knew about the migration of the Prophet that night? Who was aware that the Prophet was about to migrate that evening or that night? Of course Imam Ali because the Prophet had told him and he had asked him to sleep in his bed. So Imam Ali knew about this. Who else? But that person is not Imam Ali because Imam Ali was in the room. So who's this person talking to these pagans and telling them, you know, shame on you, you missed your opportunity, he left, just touch your head and see the dust that he threw at you. Who's that person? Now if we look at historical clues, Ibn Ishaq, who is also an expert on the Prophet's biography and he has a seerah work, Ibn Ishaq says, وَلَمْ يُعْلَمْ فِيمَا بَلَغَنِي وَلَمْ يَعْلَمْ فِيمَا بَلَغَنِي بِخُرُوجِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَعَلَيْهِ He says, as far as I know, no one knew that the Prophet was leaving that night except Ali and Abu Bakr and the family of Abu Bakr. He says only these three were aware that the Prophet was leaving that night. Imam Ali obviously the Prophet told him. So Ibn Ishaq is telling us here that Abu Bakr also knew that the Prophet was leaving that night. He was aware. Okay, let's ask this question. Ibn Hisham tells us this mysterious figure appears out of nowhere and he talks to them and he's comfortable with them because he's talking to the pagans, he's having a conversation with them, he's telling them touch your hair, he's escaped. So it seems that he was aware of their plot and he was also aware <laughs> that the Prophet was escaping. Now I'm not here to make, to draw any concrete conclusions, you make your own analysis. Ibn Hisham tells us this person appeared and had this conversation. Ibn Ishaq tells us two individuals knew about the Prophet's migration. Imam Ali and Abu Bakr and yes he says Al Abi Bakr, the family of Abu Bakr. But the family of Abu Bakr, they were not close to the Prophet. They were not people who knew what the Prophet was up to, where he's going, he, they, they were not. Only Abu Bakr was you know, a companion who was around. But as for the family of Abu Bakr, they weren't that close to the Prophet. So 
if we want to historically analyze this and put the clues together, what is this indicating? This could indicate that he was aware the Prophet was leaving that night and he was also aware of the assassination attempt, the plot to kill the Prophet that they're, that they're assassinating? Okay, how did he come to know that the Prophet was leaving that night? That's a good question. If we look at Sunni sources, they tell us that Abu Bakr that night he walked into the Prophet's room only to discover Ali ibn Abi Talib in the Prophet's bed. So he asks him, where's Rasulullah Imam Ali tells him he left towards the well of Bi'r Maymuna. He tells him the Prophet he went towards a well that the Imam tells him about. It's called the well of Maymuna. Then Abu Bakr goes and tries to find the Prophet or join the Prophet. That is one narration that tells us how Abu Bakr met the Prophet. So the Prophet had not told Abu Bakr as far as we know that he's leaving that night. So either he learned from Imam Ali or another historical possibility or analysis is that as the Prophet was leaving, Abu Bakr was also coming in the, in, in the darkness of that night and he happened to meet him and the Prophet took him with him. But it's very important to analyze this event, who is this person who spoke to these assassinators, you know, these assassins who had come to assassinate the Prophet. How was he so comfortable with them? Because the way he talks to them reveals that he was close to the Prophet and also to them. He's close to them because he's talking to them very comfortably. He's aware of their plot and in fact he's even rebuking them. You know, he, you let him escape. Look at the tone of Ibn Hisham, how he quotes it. It's as if he's telling them, you let him escape. Yet at the same time, he seemed to be close to the Prophet. He, he's kind of following up with the news of the Prophet. He's concerned about where the Prophet is going, his next move. He probably even went and talked to Imam Ali now I'm not here to pass any judgment or draw any concrete conclusions, but you put these together to see what could have happened on that night. Yes, so Abu Bakr, whether he learns from Imam Ali where the Prophet is going or he coincidentally meets the Prophet, because that's another possibility, that as the Prophet was escaping, he meets Abu Bakr on the way, the Prophet holds his hands, he says, come with me. Now this was not pre-planned like Imam Ali sleeping in the Prophet's bed. Imam Ali sleeping in the Prophet's bed, that was pre-planned. The Prophet had asked him and this is why it's a virtue for him. Whereas for Abu Bakr, they use this as a virtue for him that he joined the Prophet. Abu Bakr joining the Prophet was not planned by the Prophet. It happened coincidentally. The Prophet was leaving. He meets Abu Bakr on his way. Why does the Prophet tell him, come with me? Because the Prophet was concerned because those men were still guarding the Prophet's house. He was concerned if Abu Bakr goes back to that area, they're going to interrogate him. Excuse me, where did you come from? Did you see Muhammad? 
And the Prophet was concerned if they interrogate him, that could lead to his whereabouts. That will give them a hint that he may have met the Prophet. So the Prophet just took him, not to give any clues to the pagans where the Prophet was. Now there are, by the way, some, this is not the majority of, of Shia scholars, but there are those scholars who believe that one reason the Prophet took him, he was more concerned than that. <coughs> that maybe he would actually go and reveal where the Prophet was. We don't have any concrete, concrete evidence. You can put some clues together, but we don't have any concrete historical evidence that that is the case. But some scholars do believe in that and they do consider that as a very strong possibility. But in any case, it was not planned. The Prophet happened to meet him and he took him. He took him with him to go to the cave. So if he went, well, well, he first spoke to the pagans, then he goes, you know, for example, he, let's say if we take the other version that tells us Imam Ali salam told him where the Prophet is, then he went to search for the Prophet. So we don't know exactly who spoke to the pagans, but there are indications that could have been him. And if he did speak to the pagans, we could say that later he went, you know, in a different direction. Maybe he also was searching for the Prophet, then the Prophet took him with him so he doesn't go back. And they would interrogate him and try to find out where, where he is. Yes? Did Abu Bakr ever in his life mention that he was the person that was with the Prophet? Did he ever there, is, there is a discussion about the entire incident, whether Abu Bakr was even with the Prophet in the cave or that was another person. There are some researchers who will negate that. But from our hadiths of Ahlul Bayt, from Imam al-Baqir, Imam al-Sadiq it seems well established that he was with the Prophet. But did he ever claim in his lifetime that he was... He, not, he did not claim it as a virtue, no. For example, at Saqifah, when companions were listing their virtues, this is not one virtue that you know, he would claim for himself because it wasn't a virtue as we shall see. So we say he was with the Prophet, the Prophet did take him, he went into the cave, but it's not a virtue for him. And that's why he never considered it a virtue. Yes? Did he ever mention as a virtue that he left Salah? No, that's also not something that he mentioned as a virtue, the fact that he left Salah. Because we believe in our correct historical sources that he did. He tried to lead Salah, but then the Prophet told Imam Ali or Ibn Abbas to carry him as he was very sick. Aisha sent her father, when she saw the Prophet was ill, she told her father, why don't you go and lead the salah? When the Prophet heard, he was upset and disappointed. So he told them, even though I'm sick, it's very hard for me to pray, but take me and he made it a point that he would lead the prayer. And he never mentioned that as a virtue, no. Abu Bakr at Saqifah and even during his caliphate, he never said the Prophet appointed me to lead the salah. That's not a virtue he mentioned. And the cave is also, you know, not a virtue that he would mention. So we do believe that he was with the Prophet. There are some who've, who've tried to refute that and they bring their own evidence. I myself don't, I don't think their evidence is strong enough. So he was definitely with the Prophet. But now let's examine whether that was a virtue or not. Because the verse of, a, of the cave is considered the biggest virtue that they have for Abu Bakr. He's the companion of the Prophet in the cave. And as we mentioned last time, they use this virtue 
to eclipse what Imam Ali did earlier that night, which, is, which was his act of sacrifice. So we'll examine whether this is a virtue or not. Yeah, the Imam does not give them a concrete answer. Yeah. According to some sources, he says, I don't know exactly. According to some sources, he just, uh, you know, gives them a very vague answer. So the Imam doesn't tell them. Of course, he doesn't tell the pagans where the Prophet is. Now, Sunni hadiths, they, they, there are some hadiths that say he told Abu Bakr where the Prophet is, and that's how Abu Bakr joined him. Some, some of our scholars have disputed whether Imam Ali did actually tell Abu Bakr. So a, a very likely scenario is that he just coincidentally met the Prophet and the Prophet took him with him, so his whereabouts would not be exposed by the pagans. They tried, remember as we mentioned Khalid ibn al-Walid, he was holding his sword and they wanted to attack Imam Ali. Imam Ali leaped out of his bed, he twisted the arms of Khalid ibn al-Walid, he took the sword from him and that scene was so frightening to them to see a 23-year-old young man humiliating their warrior Khalid. So as, as the historical hadith says, they started running like sheep. So Imam Ali was tough and brave. Very, very brave. And you know, they also saw no point in threatening Imam Ali to tell them where the Prophet is. You know, you could say, but in the end they could have, you know, grabbed him and put the sword on his head, tell us where he is or we'll kill you. Why didn't they do that? Because what? Well, on, on the, uh, in addition to that, why wouldn't they try something like that? Yes. They were cons they were scared, but they could have, I mean, asked for help and gotten a hundred people to hold Imam Ali alayhi salam. Why didn't they try to threaten Imam Ali to force him to tell them where the Prophet is? Since they knew Imam loyalty. If the guy is sleeping in the Prophet's bed and he's willing to die, what's the point of threatening him? He's not going to tell you. He's sleeping there, waiting for the swords to come at him. So they knew Imam Ali would not budge. It was very clear to them. So they thought, they thought it was pointless, let's just leave him. Because if he's willing to die, obviously he's not going to <laughs> respond to their threats. Exactly. Yes. So Sayyid, what if they had planned in case that they actually like succeeded and they had the whole idea that they would gang up a bunch of different people? What if they have like in mind if they did actually succeed? Were they going to blame like themselves or were they just going to take... Yes, their plan as we mentioned last time to have 15 men from 15 tribes. All of them together participate in the act of killing the Prophet. That way no one single tribe would hold, would claim responsibility. All the tribes in Mecca would claim responsibility. What is Bani Hashim going to do? Go to war with every tribe? It's not possible. So they would have made a blood money settlement, they would have given the diya, and that's it, it would be over. Because if one tribe would attack the Prophet, they would be in trouble with Bani Hashim. Bani Hashim would retaliate. But when you have 15 tribes, that's most of Mecca, you can't go to war with everybody. That was their evil plot. To kill the Prophet without having any tribe hold responsibility for it. 
So in any case, the Prophet along with Abu Bakr, he goes towards the cave. They realize that their plot failed. So what do they do? They go and bring a Qa'if. Qa'if is a person who's an expert in feet and footsteps. In the, ba in the past you had people like that. Just like today you have palm experts, what do you call them? You know those people who read your palm and they tell you all about you? Palm readers, right? You had foot readers back then. And basically they brought an expert who would examine footsteps on the sand and he could trace those footsteps and tell who the person is. So they brought someone and they told him, look around the house of the Prophet, try to locate the Prophet's footsteps and see where he went. So he came and he was following the footsteps of the Prophet until he reaches a point, he tells him, look, somebody else joined the Prophet. That's the area where Abu Bakr joins the Prophet. He tells him now there's two people. First it was the Prophet alone, now you have an additional person joining the Prophet. So they go and they follow the footsteps, they go south four kilometers, about 2.5 miles south of Masjid al-Haram. They go south following the footsteps until they reach a cave. This cave had two mouths, two openings, one on the eastern side, one on the western side. The footsteps led them to which side? The western side, the western mouth opening of the cave. Now once they reach the mouth of the cave, they found something unusual. The footsteps clearly lead into the cave. I mean they just stop at the opening of the cave, meaning the person who was treading this path yesterday definitely went in there, but they see three unusual things or signs at the mouth of the cave. First of all, there were a lot of tree branches covering the mouth of the cave. So you have to kind of, you know, um, move them around in order to get in, that's number one. Number two, they saw a wild pigeon, it had nested on the branches of that tree which was at the mouth of the cave and the pigeon was sitting there on its egg. Now with a wild pigeon like that, if you try to move the branches and get in, First of all, you would have probably dislocated the nest, the egg would have fallen out, and the wild pigeon would have left. So for the wild pigeon to be there in that state, it indicated to them that for many, many weeks or days, this place has been deserted and no one entered the cave. That was the second sign. The third one was the spider that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to the mouth of the cave, and that spider had formed a web completely sealing the mouth of the cave with its web. So they realized, okay, it's impossible for him to have entered so recently. So that Qa'if, that expert of footsteps, when he looked at that scene, he was puzzled. He told them, look, the guy you're looking for, either the, the earth swallowed him or he just flew in the sky. I don't know what happened to him. But he did come here. But then what happened, we don't know. So the Prophet and Abu Bakr, they were in the cave at that time and they were listening to what they were saying. So that's how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protects His Prophet in the cave from these evil mushrikeen. Now by the way, speaking of the cave, I remember many, many years ago I was in Manchester in, U in, in the UK. Uh, I was speaking at a conference on Al-Imam Al-Mahdi ta'ala farajah. 
one of the people at the conference posed this question. He said, you know, uh, you Shia, you have this very silly belief that your Mahdi, your Imam went hiding into a basement in Samarra. What is this nonsense? If Imam al-Mahdi is really the Imam whom God has appointed and he is divinely guided by God, what's this nonsense for him to go and hide in a basement? So I told him, first of all, that basement was his father's house. You know, some people just don't know the historical context of what happened. Bani al-Abbas had guards intruding into the house of Imam al-Askari to search for a potential heir to Imam al-Askari. They had heard something maybe as a boy or a child, so they were searching. Now imagine if the authorities are in your father's house, your own house, right? and they're searching and you could go into a basement or somewhere to hide, is that unnatural? That's his father's house, for God's sake, what's so unusual about that? That's the first point. Then I told him, look, the same God who protected his messenger in a cave from the unbelievers can protect his representative in a basement. What's the difference? If you want to make a mockery out of the basement story, well, Non-Muslims can also make a mockery out of the cave story. Ah, your messenger hid in a cave and some spider came out of nowhere. What is this nonsense? The same God who will protect Rasulullah in a cave and have him hide there can have him, Imam al-Mahdi hide in a basement. What's the big deal here? What is so illogical about that? If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does protect the Holy Prophet while he was in the cave. Now, let's examine something very important over here, which is the verse of the cave, which is highly cited amongst other schools of thought as a very huge virtue for Abu Bakr. Let's examine in detail this verse. So the verse of the cave is in Surah At-Tawbah, verse number 40. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِلَّا تَنْصُرُوهُ فَقَدْ نَصَرَهُ اللَّهُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after talking about their assassination plots and their attempts, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala supported him. Now Allah doesn't mention exactly whom he's talking about here, Allah uses a pronoun, but from the previous verses that are talking about the Prophet, we know who the pronoun refers to. So when Allah says, فَقَدْ نَصَرَهُ اللَّهُ Who is Allah talking about? The Prophet Allah has given the Prophet his nasr and his support. This is clear from the context of the verse. Allah is now telling us the story of how he saved him and he supported him. إِذْ أَخْرَجَهُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا Those unbelievers caused the Prophet to leave Mecca because they decided to assassinate him. They left him with no option but to escape. He was the second of two being in the cave. He, the Prophet, says to his companion, Don't be sad, don't have sorrow. Allah is with us. Then Allah sent down his sakina, his tranquility on him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala supported him with invisible unseen soldiers. So they take this verse as a big virtue for Abu Bakr. See the Quran calls him 
second of two, they're two, and Allah is praising that. And he's a companion of the Prophet in the Quran. When it says that, it's a praise. And the Sakina came down on him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down the tranquility, that inner state of rest and belief in God. And that only comes down on a believer. That was single. What was single? Yes, well they say, many of them say Allah sent His Sakina on him, meaning Abu Bakr. We'll, we'll, we'll debate that now, we'll examine that. So this is a clear verse in the Holy Quran that is praising him. Let's now break this down and analyze each of these claims one by one. First of all, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, thaniyathnain. The Prophet was the second of two. Allah is telling us about the number of people who were in the cave. Does that in itself, in any way, give a virtue to the one who was with the Prophet? If the Prophets, if Allah says there were two people, the Prophet and someone, the number, since when does a number give you the meaning of a virtue? Does a number give you the meaning of a virtue? Allah is just telling us there were two. Is there any virtue in that? Is that a praise? If I say there were three people in the room and one of them was good, does that mean the other two are good? No, <laughs> numbers are silent. They don't tell you anything about people. Numbers are just numbers. They just tell you quantity. How many people? Do they tell you about quality? Since when do numbers talk about quality? Numbers in any language talk about quantity. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says they were two. Okay, they were two, they were not three. How is that a virtue? So this definitely is not a virtue. Number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls him a companion. He says to his sahib. So they say, see, the Quran is confirming that he's a companion and that's praising him. Question, the word sahib, companion, in itself, does that in any way give the meaning of praise? No. Why not? Exactly. We can draw from Quranic examples in which the Quran uses the word sahib to, ref to refer to non-believers. The very famous story of Prophet Yusuf when he was in prison and he had two companions. Those two companions, what were they worshipping? Idols. And that's why he gave them advice. How does, does he address them in the Quran? What does he tell them? Ya sahibayisijn. Oh, my two companions of the prison. Does that mean the Quran was praising those idol worshippers? In fact, he's rebuking them. He's telling them, isn't worshipping one God better than all these idols that you're worshipping? So the Quran considers an idol worshipper, an unbeliever, to be the companion of Prophet Yusuf That means the word companion in itself does not denote any special virtue. It just means the one who's with you, that's it. That person who's with you can be good or bad. So this in itself does not in any way give you the meaning of virtue, yes. Okay, uh, about the two companions in the prison for Nabi Yusuf, uh, didn't they convert and become, uh, and believe in Allah? At the point when he was talking to them, were they believers or were they idol worshippers? When he called them my companions, idol. they were idol worshippers, okay. 
So that means you can call an idol worshiper a companion. That proves the point. Regardless of what, they, what happened to them after that. Whether they believed or not, in that moment they were mushrik. In that moment. Yet Prophet Yusuf calls them what? My companions. That proves that you can call someone who's not a believer a companion. That's enough for us. Regardless of what happened to them later. Okay, that's one proof from the Holy Quran. And this is Surah Yusuf verse 39. Another verse, Surah Al-Kahf verse 37. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about a conversation that took place between a believer, a mu'min, and a kafir. The Quran says the believer said to his kafir companion. Allah says, قَالَ لَهُ صَاحِبُهُ وَهُوَ يُحَاوِرُهُ His companion said to him while he was debating him, talking to him, أَكَفَرْتَ بِالَّذِي خَلَقَكَ Are you doing kufr in God? Believer saying that to his disbelieving companion. So that means you could have a companion who's a disbeliever, yet you call him Sahib, according to the Holy Quran. This is Surah Al-Kahf, verse 37. In fact, the word Sahib in Arabic is so general, it can even include not humans. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Qalam, Verse 48, he refers to the whale of Prophet Yunus as what? Sahib, companion, friend. فَاصْبِرْ لُحُكْمِ رَبِّكْ وَلَا تَكُنْ كَصَاحِبِ الْحُوتِ And don't be like the friend or the companion of the whale. Even you could use that word to refer to a whale. What kind of a virtue is that? Is Allah praising the whale by saying that? No, it has nothing to do with it. So this expression in the Qur'an that the Prophet said to his sahib in no way is a virtue. It's just saying that the Prophet said something to his companion. Companion could be good, companion could be bad. Companion could be a believer, could be a hypocrite. That verse does not tell us anything about this companion, just with this expression. So that's the second very important point in the verse. Number three, they say, but see, the Prophet loved him so much and he was so concerned about him, he told him, لا تحزن. Don't have sorrow, don't be sad. He doesn't tell him, don't be fearful. Because we have a word for that in Arabic that specifically means fear, which is لا تخف. Don't have خوف, don't have fear. He tells him, don't have sorrow, don't be sad. So they're saying, see, the Prophet, as of his compassion, he's telling him, it's okay, don't be sad. Well, if he was a bad person, why would the Prophet console him like that? Give him consolation like that. Our response to that, this phrase in itself is not in any way praising him. In fact, many of our scholars have considered this phrase to be what? A vice for him, not a virtue. Why? Before we try to speculate what his intentions are, we'll, we'll get to that point. Here's what, what scholars have said. They're like, if you have sorrow, regardless of what he had sorrow about, either his sorrow was in God's obedience or disobedience. Either his sorrow was good or bad. Is there a third option? No. If his sorrow was good, and he's concerned about the life of the Prophet and he's showing his love and concern for the Prophet, is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
That's a good thing. That's God's obedience. If his sorrow was in God's obedience, why would the Prophet prohibit him from, from obeying God? Why? If what he did was good, why would the Prophet prohibit him? And tell him, don't be sorrowful. Because the Prophet never prohibits you from doing something good. And if it was bad, well that's why the Prophet prohibited him. So that's the argument many scholars have made, yes. This is La and Nahiyah, yes. La Tahzan. And that's why it is what? Majzum. Because La and Nahiyah, the prohibiting no, don't, the imperative don't, it makes the verb after it Majzum. And that's why Tahzan. It's not Tahzanu. Because a fi'l mudara is what? Marfu'. But over here it is Majzum, that's why it has the sukun. Yes. We'll get to that. We'll analyze that phrase. And that's a very powerful argument that we can make. Now, what is my personal view about this argument our scholars have made? That the Prophet telling him, La Tahzan um, indicates that he was disobeying God and that his sorrow was negative, uncalled for, and that's why the Prophet prohibited him. I myself, I'm not sure how valid this argument is. Because we do have many instances in the Holy Qur'an in which this word is also used for prophets, for righteous people, such as Jesus السلام, telling his mother, La tahzani, don't have sorrow when she was about to give birth. He told her, don't have huzun, don't have sadness, right? It doesn't mean that what she, what she was doing is necessarily bad. And we have, you know, a number of, of, of other verses like that. So, it's not clear to me that that in itself indicates he was disobeying God, but it's also not praising him. We just don't know why the Prophet said that to him. It could be, it could go either direction. So that in itself is not proof that he's being praised. But is it proof that the Prophet is rebuking him for that sorrow? It's not that clear to me, to be honest. But many scholars have said that. For me, it's not that clear. Yes, for me, the word choice that God used is alarming. Because if it was just fear that he had, the Prophet is going to be killed, maybe he will be killed. The Quran should have said, La takhaf, don't be fearful, Allah will protect us. But, but he, he had huzun, he had sorrow. See, huzun in Arabic is grief, sadness, sorrow. Why? In that state, why would you have sadness or grief? You, you do the judgment. Why are you sad? See, if somebody is about to attack you and you're about to get killed, you're not sad. You're what? You're scared. You're in fear. Why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not use that word which specifically means fear? And Allah uses a word that means sorrow, sadness. You're about to get killed. What are you sad about? <laughs> you do the judgment here. But it's, it's, it's very important why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses this word and not why la takhaf. Because in normal usages, that's exactly what you tell someone. You tell your friend, don't get scared. You don't tell them, don't be sad. Don't be sorrowful. Sorrow is when you've missed something. <laughs> right? He knew if those guys came and got to them, 
you are safe, you are not going to kill them. Unless if they don't get to them. That's a possibility. That's definitely a possibility. So it's very interesting why Allah uses this word. In any case, what is very clear to us, it's not a praise. Now what is it exactly, what his intentions are? Allahu A'lam, God knows. But is that in itself praising Him? In no way is that praising Him. In fact, we have many, many verses that say the believers, those who have Iman, they don't have Huzun. For example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Baqarah verse 38, Surah Al-Baqarah verse 62, Surah Al-Baqarah verse 112, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the believer that they have no Huzun, they have no sadness. Allah says, فَمَنْ تَبِعَ هُدَايَ فَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ The one who is on my path and he's following my path, they have no fear, they have no sorrow. Whereas this guy had sorrow. In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about those who believe and do good. Allah says, فَلَهُمْ أَجْرُهُمْ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ Allah will give them their reward. وَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ They don't grieve, they don't have sorrow. And look at Imam Ali on that night even though the danger is surrounding him, did he have any traces of sorrow? No, no traces of sorrow. In fact, when the Prophet told him, you know, I'll be saved and you'll be sleeping in my bed, he even smiled, he even laughed. Look at the contrast. And then look at the Quran and talking about the believers, Allah says they don't grieve, they don't have sorrow. So we have many, many verses. Surah Al-Baqarah verse 277, Surah Yunus verse 62, Allah, The true friends of God. There's no fear, there's no sorrow, yes. Does the Prophet as he's leaving his house uh, witness what's going to happen? Because I've heard um, people say that he was able to walk past them while they were standing out there, but he, let, he was like, they weren't able to see him when he said. Yeah, the Prophet cast dirt into their eyes and he recited a verse from Surah Yasin which is called the verse of the barrier, that's why they didn't see him. Now the next part, inna allaha ma'ana, very briefly, the next part, inna allaha ma'ana, God is with us, see, God is with Abu Bakr. Well the Holy Quran tells us what? God is with everyone everywhere. وَهُوَ مَعَكُمْ أَيْنَ مَا كُنْتُمْ Allah in another verse, He says, and He's with you wherever you are. Is that praise? And Allah is not talking about the believers, in fact, in that verse in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, He's talking about people who whisper and they think God can't hear them and they're conspiring. Allah says, look, don't conspire. I'm with you wherever you are. Yes. Is that a praise? <laughs> Obviously not. So the Quran saying the Prophet told him God is with us, that means God is watching. He's here. Don't be so worried. Right? Allah is the master planner here. That in no way is praising Him. God is everywhere, even if the unbelievers are there, Allah is still there. So that in itself is not a virtue. The final point, and this is the most powerful point. If you look at the context of the verse, Allah is using the pronoun to refer to the Prophet. They caused him to leave. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala supported him. He told his companion, God is with us. Then Allah says, he sent down his sakina on him. Who's that him? No, it's either the prophet or that companion. One of these two. Who's sakina, that tranquility in the heart? 
that's continuously about the Prophet, that means the Sakinah was. They make the argument that it's Abu Bakr because the Prophet doesn't need the Sakinah. He already has the Sakinah. This is negated by other verses in the Quran, which clearly state in other battles, for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent his Sakinah ala Rasulih. So the Quran does state very clearly that the Sakinah comes down on the Rasul. So their argument that the Prophet doesn't need Sakinah is invalid. No, in fact, the Sakinah always comes down on the Prophet. So if you look at the context of the pronouns in the Arabic language, the pronoun is referring to the Prophet, not to the companion. That would be uneloquent for the Quran to make the pronoun go against its context and refer to the companion. So the Sakinah came down only on the Prophet. Why is that important? There's only two people in the cave. In every other verse in the Quran that Allah mentions the Sakinah, it comes down on the believers. So Allah says the Sakinah comes down on the Prophet and the believers. Or the Sakinah come down, comes down only on the believers, on the mu'mineen. We don't have an example in the Quran in which the Sakinah is coming down on other than a mu'min. So the question is, if he was a mu'min, why the Sakinah did not come down on him? Because the Quran in other verses, such as Surah At-Tawbah verse 26, states that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought down his Sakinah on the Messenger and the believers. So whenever the Prophet was with the Mu'mineen and he received Sakinah, the believers also received that tranquility from God, except in this verse. Only the Prophet is receiving it. Why? Well, you draw the conclusion. Why is he being denied the Sakinah of God? Why? Tells us it should have been Alayhima, yes, on both of them. Because when Allah talks about Sakinah, about the Prophet and believers, Allah says all of them were included, the Prophet and all the Mu'mineen. Why in this verse, Sakinah is exclusive to the Prophet and his companion was not included? Why? Well, I'm not you know, passing any judgments here, but we have to contemplate the Book of God. When the Qur'an deliberately excludes him from Sakinah, it's telling us a lot about this person. So, brothers and sisters, with that, we will end this course on the biography of the Prophet We will resume, inshallah, on October 1, and we will transition into the Prophet's migration to Medina. The Prophet stays for three days in this cave. Next we'll examine what happens. Imam Ali comes, he brings him food. The Prophet you know, makes a few requests for Imam Ali to fulfill. So we'll examine that in the upcoming school year inshallah.